When I was a kid, we had a book around the house called 101 Best Loved Poems. And one of the ones that I love most started like this. Tell me not in mournful numbers, life is but an empty dream. For the soul is dead that slumbers, and things are not what they seem. Life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and wait. And I'll tell you the rest of that poem, but the book got stolen by my bratty little sister, so I don't have it. But my favorite line in that poem was, things are not what they seem. There's a kind of magic in that. Because hope is rooted in what we do not see. Uh, we're learning how to hope together. And every week we're living in this great prayer from the Apostle Paul. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now Paul doesn't say, may your circumstances fill you with hope. Things may not look hopeful, but things are not what they seem. Some people wait for their circumstances to bring them hope. Some people bring hope to their circumstances. There's a story in the Old Testament, Numbers uh, chapter 13, where 12 scouts are sent out by Moses to look at the promised land to bring back a report and to bring back some recommendations. And, and 10 of them return and say, we can't go forward. The risk is too great. We're too weak. Things are too dangerous. Two of them return and say, we can't go backwards. The opportunity is too great. God is too strong. Things are not what they seem. Now, they all looked at precisely the same situation. They faced exactly the same dangers and the same opportunity. Two of them were filled with hope, and ten of them had no hope at all. And you might have heard of the two hopers, Joshua and Caleb. They became heroes. To this day, millennia later, on the other side of the world, the names Joshua and Caleb remain two of the most popular baby names year after year. On the other hand, honestly, even if you're a Bible person, can you name a single one of the other ten hopeless guys? They're in the Bible. I will tell you their names. See if you know any parents using any of them. Igal, Gadi, Palti, Sether, Gadiel, Amiel, Hoshael, Gul, Nabi, and Shemua. Anybody thinking about naming your baby little Nabi? Hey, Nabi or Shemua sounds like what you name a killer whale. Now, uh, I don't think you can even look at a little baby and love it and not be filled with hope for it. In fact, hope is another name that we give to babies. Nobody names their child despair. And every child is a natural hoper. We're born that way. They're convinced they will walk. And although they fall a thousand times, something deep in their soul says, keep trying. And they do. And one day it happens. But then we grow up. And sometimes hope dies. And the conviction that my life matters, that I'm going to walk, that this fall is not fatal, that God says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future, that vision fades and hope dies. And when hope dies, we die right along with it. And of course, this season can be a hope killer. Maybe you lost your job or you lost your home or your financial health has been threatened or you're alone and afraid. 
or you're filled with resentment, you're drinking too much, you're burned out, stressed out, demotivated, discouraged, and you wonder, how do I build damaged hope back up again? Well, I'm so glad that you've tuned in for this message. We're going to look at a man in the Bible named Elijah who suffered a collapse of hope that was remarkably sudden and incredibly deep, but hope got reborn for him, and it can be for you and it can be for me. I want to say a word about how to read and study Bible stories as we get into this. They are not, contrary to a lot of popular opinion, like Aesop's fables. The hero of the Bible is God, and God interacts with real, flawed, almost always morally ambiguous human beings like you and me. And we read about them not to get little virtue principle stories, but to learn about how life with God is gradually revealed on the earth. And that's very true of this story. Elijah is a prophet, very human guy. In 1 Kings 18, he is seriously overachieving. You might know this story. He courageously confronts 450 idolatrous prophets of Baal single-handed, he builds the altar, he digs the trenches, he hauls the woods, he butchers the bull, he prays down fire from heaven, he defeats the prophet at great risk to his own life. Then, under his inspired preaching, multitudes of previously resistant Israelites fall to the ground and worship the one true God. Then, Elijah prophesies to his mortal enemy, the wicked King Ahab, that there would be an end to a years-long drought. Elijah climbs from the bottom of Kishon Valley up to the top of Mount Carmel and prays for rain, which miraculously comes. Then Elijah tells the king to ride in his chariot to Jezreel. It's about 15 miles away, and the king does. But we're told that Elijah had a burst of spiritual energy. Tucking his cloak into his belt, Elijah ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. The man outruns a chariot. The man cannot be stopped. He's like Spider-Man, Captain America, Black Panther, and Wonder Woman all rolled into one. Then, chapter 19, wicked King Ahab tells his wicked wife Jezebel of Elijah's amazing triumph, and she is put off by it, and she sends a messenger to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like the dead prophets of Baal. Now, as readers, we all know this is going to be amazing. Elijah has faced much tougher enemies than her and dismissed them with a wave of his hand. What's more, this isn't even a real problem. When Jezebel says, if by this time tomorrow I don't take your life, that's what was called a threat formula. She wasn't being literal. If she was, she would have had soldiers arrest him on the spot. Elijah's now a national hero. She knows it. So this is just intimidation language. You keep this up, you'll hear from my lawyers kind of thing. What's more, Elijah knows the power of God. If you've ever read the Bible uh, closely, an Old Testament scholar named Dave Hubbard talks about this. Miracles in the Bible uh, are not evenly distributed throughout. They cluster mostly in three main eras for three main reasons. One is the time of Moses when God's people are being formed, ten plagues, sea opens up and so. Another, of course, is the time of Jesus and the formation of the early church. The third time is this season of Elijah and his protege, Elisha, when Israel is being prophetically challenged to come out of idolatry and live in 
the worship and justice and holiness of the one true God. Elijah is the man who calls down fire from heaven and prays away drought and outruns chariots. He's fed by the ravens of God. He raises the dead. He makes kings and he breaks kings. So if we were standing there and Elijah is being threatened by Jezreel, we'd say, Jezebel, you have sadly underestimated Elijah if you think you can rattle him with your puny, hollow little threat. Right, Elijah? Elijah? Anybody seen Elijah? Because nobody has. The text says he ran for his life. And we know he's a pretty fast runner. He hits the southern border town of Beersheba. That's where you could leave Israel, kind of like when you get to the Rio Grande in Texas. And Elijah leaves his servant there and emigrates to the wilderness. Now, dismissing his servant is symbolically a way of leaving his job, leaving his ministry. He terminates his staff. Crossing the border is symbolically leaving the people of God whom he was called to serve. He goes into the Negev desert, no man's land. We're told he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, people who write about this story or read it sometimes wonder, how could the triumphant, death-defying superhero Elijah of chapter 18 turn into this whining, hopeless crybaby in chapter 19? How could Joshua turn into Shemua? I wonder if he was bipolar. Uh, if he were to go into a modern-day psychiatric clinic uh, and get examined, you look for manic signs in chapter 18. Risky behavior, check. Excess, out, ener excess energy, he outran a chariot. Uh, confrontational, check. Reduced sense of fear, check. And then in chapter 19, when you look for the diagnostic criteria of depression, uh, diminished in activity, interest in activities, check. Fatigue, loss of energy, check. Depressed affect, feelings of worthlessness, thoughts of suicide, check, check, check. Change in appetite, change in sleep habits, check, check. Now, of course, thousands of years ago, psychiatric diagnostic categories did not exist, so I don't mean to read them into the story. I just thought I'd mention it because maybe you, or maybe somebody you love, suffers from bipolar disorder, or clinical levels of anxiety or depression, or obsessive-compulsive disorder, or dissociative disorder, or autism, or addiction, and you think God could never use you and I'd want to say, that is a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible is not a book about paragons of moral virtue or mental and emotional health. It's a book about God and the strange ways God works with the strangest of people. And I want to say to you today, if you find yourself with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. And you are not to live in shame. And I hope you will confidentially ask for prayer and help right now today because we'd love to be there for you. We really would. God does not want you to be in despair. God has a purpose for you just like he did for Elijah. So I want to tell you about a few hope killers that I think flipped the switch for Elijah in chapter 19 and choked out his hope, at least for a little while. 
and how his therapist, Dr. God, helped get him through. And maybe that'll help you. Maybe that'll help us as we learn to be students of hope in this season in the desert. I think for sure one major hope killer for Elijah was just fatigue. Doesn't sound terribly spiritual, but fatigue is a hope killer. Imagine going through what Elijah did in chapter 18. Remember, he's a real guy. After confronting the whole nation of Israel in one of the boldest speeches in the Bible, taking on 450 false idolatrous prophets single-handed, constructing an altar, butchering the bull yourself, praying down fire from heaven, then lecturing a wicked king, then climbing Mount Carmel and praying down rain, ending a drought, then outrunning a horse and chariot for 15 miles, maybe he needed a breather. I kind of have a feeling his adrenaline levels were off the charts because he wasn't Superman. He's just a guy. Can I say this? Can I say this? You're just a guy. You're just a man, just a woman, just an ordinary person. One of the most amazing aspects of this amazing story is Elijah pours out this amazing prayer. I've had enough. I'm no good. Take me now. And God doesn't even bother to answer. Look what God does. Then he, Elijah, lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was a cake. If you've ever heard of angel food cake, that's where it got started. I mean, literally, that was angel food cake. And in fact, then Elijah took another nap and then the angel gave him a second cake. Theological scholar Joy Clarkson put it like this. Never forget in the Bible, Elijah was like, God, I'm so mad I want to die. So God was like, here's some food. Why don't you have a nap? So Elijah slept and ate and decided things were not so bad. The moral of the story is never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack. Where things are not what they seem. Elijah was just tired. You ever get tired? It's amazing. Uh, a few months ago, tons and tons of people had never heard of Zoom. Now, one of the hottest topics going is Zoom fatigue. Just had an article in Harvard Business Review, National Geographic. Turns out, if you stare at another person, uh, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, we're kind of not used to that. Plus, you have to look at your own self in a box, and it turns out your own self is a lot more wrinkled and looks a lot worse than you thought it would, you thought you would. We get exhausted sitting in a chair looking at a screen. Now, I understand Elijah is not you. He doesn't have your stamina, your drive, your ability to thrive on junk food and go without regular sleep and stay up all night watching whatever. Elijah was just uh, world-changing, king-challenging, nation-forming, history-altering prophet. He's not up to your speed. I get it. I get it. But you might consider you will never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. Say that one more time. You will never reach consistent spiritual renewal in a state of perpetual physical exhaustion. You are an inhabitant of, 
You live at the mercy of your body. And maybe this season is a good time to address that. People wonder, I can't drive, I can't commute, I can't travel, I can't shop, I can't eat out, I can't go to the office or the gym, what should I do? Well, you could rest, you could sleep, you could eat healthy, you could cut down on caffeine or alcohol if they're getting in the way. You could take long walks, maybe with a friend, maybe even with our friend Jesus. Did you ever notice this? Sometimes the difference between the confident hope of Joshua and the defeated spirit of Shemua is just a good night's sleep. Sometimes, based on the Bible, the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Maybe that's why you turned in today. But there is another hope killer. Fatigue is one. Uh, another one is isolation. When God finally does speak to Elijah after some time and the nap snack thing, he asks Elijah a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And you can underline the word here if you're following along in your Bible. It's a question of physical location. Hey, Elijah, your calling is there. Your mission is there. Why are you here? But it's also a question of spiritual condition. How did I get here? How did the confident, faith-filled prophet of God become a despairing, hopeless, suicidal runaway? How did I get here? God knows. Every single one of us asked that question at some points in our life. We all end up sitting under a broom tree. We all end up out in the desert. How did I get here? Elijah responds. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I've been very zealous. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. Look how I'm being treated. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. I don't know about you, but one of the things I'm discovering, particularly in this season of my life, is I have a tremendous capacity for self-pity. It's almost a spiritual gift. It's such a miserable experience. A friend of mine recently called it cold comfort. Oh, man, that's true. There's comfort in it. That's why I go to it. But it's cold comfort. And it breeds in isolation. It distorts my perspective to make life look more hopeless. It's fascinating. In chapter 18, Elijah is aware that there are scores of other faithful prophets that love and serve the God of Israel and their lives are at risk. Now, one chapter later, he forgets all about them. He says, I'm all alone. God's response is so gracious. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then is given to Elijah all of the elements that are associated in the Bible with what's called the theophany, the tangible manifestation of the presence of God, the glory of God, a mighty wind, and a great earthquake, and a powerful fire. And then a phrase that is apparently very hard to translate, a still small voice, maybe, or a gentle breeze, maybe, or in some translations, even just silence. Silence. 
I think maybe it was God holding out his hand saying, Elijah, do you know what this is? No, it's the world's smallest violin. And then God asked him exactly the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And we wait to see. Now, how will Elijah have been changed, moved, challenged, inspired, encouraged by witnessing the actual presence of God? How different will his response be now from verse 10? And he speaks. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. He hasn't changed at all. This is precisely the same speech, word for word. This very powerful spiritual experience, manifestation of God, was apparently utterly wasted on this man. But God is not done. God tells Elijah, there are thousands of others ready to stand with him. He says, Elijah, you're part of a much larger community. Things are not what you, the way they seem. That could inspire you, Elijah, and encourage you and model hope for you. God has Elijah go anoint another man named Elisha, who's going to become his student. And more than that, become his partner, and more than that, become his friend, and more than that, become like a son to him. Elisha will actually call him Elijah, my father. You are not so alone. Your enemy is not so strong. Israel is not so faithless. God is not so distant. See, gang, it turns out that hope is not a solo activity. It's a team sport. Isolation will diminish hope. Connection will multiply hope. And that's part of why we want everybody uh, at our church, Menlo Church, everybody anywhere, to be in a life group. One of the things I love about this season is that thanks to God and Zoom, anybody anywhere can be part of a group. Nance and I, our life group met last night, and we have a real good friend that now lives 3,000 miles away but is with us now when our group meets. Life groups keep us from isolation and they remind us that God is at work. Life groups help us find and follow Jesus in our ordinary lives so that Jesus might be formed in us. Every time that Elijah would look at Elisha, it would be a reminder to him, God's work will go on. My efforts are not in vain. There is hope. One of my practices with my friend Rick when I talk to him each morning is to talk with him regularly about my hopes. What do I hope for as a husband? What do I hope for as a dad? What do I hope for as your pastor? My spiritual hopes, my financial hopes, my vocational hopes, all of them. Now the hope practice this week is community. Maybe with your life group this week, you could have a Zoom meeting and ask everybody, what are you hoping for? What are your hopes this season? And help each other keep hope alive. You can do that. You can put in the chat right now if that's an option available to you. Just talk about here's a hope, here's a hope, here's a hope, and then encourage each other. Keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. This brings us now to the last great hope killer, and that is worry. Worry. Fatigue for sure. Isolation for sure. Really hard to worry and be hopeful. We think. This is actually the trigger for loss of hope in this story. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. 
Now, I have good news and bad news on this. The good news is hope can exist right alongside of worry. The bad news is hope only exists alongside of worry. Sometimes people think that hope can be used to get free from worry, to avoid worry, to escape worry, so that I can finally have a worry-free, pleasant little life. It actually works exactly the other way. Lou Smeads writes of a study about how World War II American airmen coped with fear. Many of them overcame fear by giving up on hope. They simply believed one of these times when they were flying on a mission, they were going to die. And then they no longer lived in fear. They just resigned themselves to it. But a strange thing happened when they had only a few missions left before going on a furlough. When they got almost to the finish line, they started believing they might actually survive. They cared. They hoped. But when they started hoping again, they started worrying again. Hope is not fatalism. But what we hope for, we do not yet have. That means hope and worry are siblings. Isn't that great news? The French writer Jacques Ellul wrote, the person who is plunged into doubt is not the unbeliever, but the person who has no other hope but hope. Unbelievers don't have to doubt. Believers doubt precisely because we live by faith. As long as we live by faith and hope, we will know doubt and fear. As long as you have something to hope for, you will have something to worry about. Isn't that good news? But it's okay. But it's okay. Because we live in the real world. Because our hope is not in hope. Our hope is in God. Our hope is not that we're strong, vital, hopeful people. Our hope is that God is a strong and good God. God tells Elijah to take action. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Hope you had a nice trip. Hope the nap and the snack were good. Hope you enjoyed the show up on the mountain. Go back the way you came. He gives Elijah a new assignment. Gives him leaders to anoint. Gives them judgment to pronounce. Gives them colleagues to recognize. And what's interesting in all this is the writer tells us absolutely nothing about how Elijah feels about this. We got an earful earlier about his fear, his escape, his aloneness, his feelings of failure, his self-pity, his desire to die, his, his you know, feeling like he's the only one that's being faithful to God. God gives him rest and food and quiet, more than a month of recovery, divine revelation, probing questions, a new direction. Is Elijah all charged up? Is he confident? Is he hopeful? Is he afraid? Text doesn't say. All we know is he did what God asked him to do. I'll tell you my guess. My guess is, for the remainder of Elijah's life, he had to deal with them both. He had to choose hope and manage fear. Choose hope, manage fear. But what Elijah did do was obey God. What he did do was go back down the mountain and take courageous action. What he did do is to say, 
I guess I won't just retire into the desert where things will be pleasant. I guess I won't just withdraw up to the mountain and make my life uh, manageable. Action, see, is a very powerful thing. It is much easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. When you act like a hopeful, courageous, expectant person, pretty soon you might start feeling more hope and feeling more courage and feeling more expectancy. If you just stay up on the mountain waiting for the feelings to strike you before you leave, you may never leave. So, what would you, Elijah, do today, Elijah, if you were feeling great hope in God? Would you pray bold prayers? Would you give generous gifts? Would you take the initiative to reach out to friends? Would you decide to start learning a new skill? Would you commit to volunteer in some helpful way? Would you cheer on a co-worker? Would you confess to a hidden sin or an addiction to a trusted friend and ask God for healing? Do it. Stop waiting to feel hope and start acting in hope. Let us then be up and doing with a heart for any fate, still achieving, still pursuing, learn to labor and to wait. For life is not an empty dream. Things are not what they seem. And if you're not quite sure what to do, go have a nap and eat a snack, and I'll see you here next week.